Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right. Everybody go ahead and move back to your seats. Good to see you all. Good to see you all. Welcome, welcome. Well, not, I can't see you, but you know, I, I generally know that you are in the vicinity somewhere. Patrick? How are you? Good. I'm good. Um, welcome, everyone, to City Beautiful Church. Uh, we're in a series right now called For the Sake of the World, um, where we're looking at this, this larger narrative of the year of how do we renew some of the things, uh, the, the ideas, the concepts that we already have within the Christian household um, so that they become vital again, that they become something real and tangible. And we've talked a lot about, especially uh, my generation and younger, we, um, we're very allergic to things that are inauthentic, but we don't always know how to, um, to reframe what is actually authentic, what is real. Um, and it's easy to be cynical, right? Yeah. Yeah. You had to think about that one for a second. It's very easy to be cynical, and it's very easy to uh, kind of wag our finger at inauthenticity. But how do we reconstruct an idea of what is true and good and beautiful? And so we're going to be continuing on in uh, this series today. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the old gods, which has become one of my favorite uh, topics um, over the past couple of months as I've been thinking through some of this content. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right in with the scripture for today. So Heavenly Father, we testify the truth that you're here, and that you are with us, and that you are for us, you are not against us. Lord, each of us brings in with us uh, perhaps feelings of guilt or regret for things in the past uh, that would seek to rob us of the present moment, while others of us uh, maybe feel a sense of anxiety or despair or anticipation of the future, uh, which prevents us from being fully here with you and with one another. And so I pray, Lord, um, at the deepest point in our hearts that we would be able to lay those things down at your feet so that we can be fully present in this moment, ready to receive whatever good things you have in store for each of us. I pray that you would teach us day by day how to stay tender, how to stay receptive and humble, that when you speak, um, we're listening, and when you tell us to act, we're ready to go. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're going to be looking today at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34, and we're going to read it in the new King James Version, which I don't think that I have uh, preached from yet. Hey, Charity, what do you think about the King James Version of the Bible? It's good, right? It's good. It's pretty good. Every sentence begins with the word and, which is great, because we were told you're not allowed to do that. Um, the new King James, ah, man, I wanted to go old King James and say the word wherewithal which I haven't used in a while, but um, I want you guys to also understand what's actually being said. Uh, but you'll, hopefully you'll see why we're choosing this particular uh, translation of the scripture. So this is uh, kind of smack dab in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is his sort of debut uh, sermon according to uh, Matthew's telling of the story. And he's, um, you know, we've talked about it a lot, like the Sermon on the Mount, the parallel is being on Mount Sinai, Moses receiving the Ten Commandments from God. So this is, you know, the, the cornerstone of God's law, uh, and the Sermon on the Mount kind of being the cornerstone of God's new reality uh, that we call the kingdom of heaven. So this is uh, beginning in chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do, do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. 
But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is in darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor weep nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature or her statue? They were very, you know, like patriarchal when they wrote the King James. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Contrary to popular opinion, uh, kind of an old wives' tale, Jesus does not speak about money more than anything else in Scripture. He speaks about the kingdom. He often uses money to serve a far larger purpose. So I just want to kind of put that uh, aside. But there are reasons that Jesus time and again comes back to the imagery of money, and there are places where he very specifically talks about our relationship with money, whether it's on a national sense of our economy or in a personal sense when it comes to our bank accounts. And so this is kind of one of those main places where Jesus is speaking about our relationship to money, but it's really about the deeper thing. What What is behind that? It's, money is just an object, it is just a tool, but there are all these attitudes and assumptions underneath the surface that we often miss in that. But the thing that I wanted to use the King James Version for is because it, it holds this word that I think is very powerful for us and I think deserves its place, again, in the scripture that says you cannot serve both God and mammon. That mammon uh, is the god of wealth, and that's what we're going to be looking at today, these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of mammon. One of these things that I've been absolutely fascinated about over the past several months is I've kind of uh, observed what's happening in our country and, and uh, the news and in a lot of my own theological research and kind of understanding what is the nature of human beings to deities throughout history. I've come to realize that a lot of the old gods are alive and well, but we've just rebranded them. A lot of the old gods, how many of you when you were little kids, it was like Greek mythology, or uh, Roman mythology, like you loved Thor before Chris Hemsworth was Thor, right? You're like one of those OGs. Yeah, some of us were really weird kids, and we loved, we loved reading about gods and other cultures. We like to think that now, kind of post-enlightenment in the scientific method, like we've left behind all of that God-believing mentality, that like our ancestors, they were so superstitious, and they believed that there was like, you know, gods of rivers and rocks and mountains, or there were gods of ideas like love or uh, courageousness or uh, getting your mail on time or whatever it might be. Like we, we think we've moved beyond that. But my premise to you today is that all of the mechanisms in worship of those little gods is still very much vibrant uh, in our world today. So I, I want to begin kind of exposing this uh, like so, because I think this is a strange idea to think that a lot of these gods are alive and well, even though they're not alive in the way that you and I think of alive. Uh, number one, um, I think we need to understand that worship, what is worship? Worship is attention. That's what worship, that's all it is. It's a, a worship is attention. Whatever we give our attention to 
is something that we worship. And the more that we give our attention to something in particular, the more that we give it power and the more that it informs and begins to shape us. And so this is why we find this profound uh, wisdom in the Psalms where it says that we become like what we worship. That whatever we ascribe worth to, whatever demands our attention and we're giving our time, our energy, and our resources to, it begins to shape and inform us on who we think that we are. And the ultimate form of worship is sacrifice. Everything costs us in life, right? We talked about this last week. Um, But there are certain kinds of worship where we sacrifice. We sacrifice time. We sacrifice attention. We sacrifice money. But even as I talked about after the Uvalde shooting, sometimes we literally sacrifice human beings for these larger ideals. And I've talked about it before that a lot of times with the military industrial complex in our country, we talk about the sacrifice that young men, mostly young men, are making for freedom, uh, but freedom really means our own economic benefits. But we tell ourselves this story as Americans that justifies the sacrifice of young men and women to this god Ares, the god of the military-industrial complex, the god that believes that we can bring peace through military strength. And what happens is we have ideas within our culture that are at the beginning, kind of useful ideas, but when enough of us give attention to them, we begin to embody them, and they become sort of these hyper-beings um, that, are, that demand our attention. It's like they become alive. They kind of rise up from just being an idea that a couple people share. That They seem to have their own kind of intelligence, and they seem to guide the direction of those who worship them. And a lot of times these gods, these hyper-beings, they make these hollow promises to us. If you give me your attention, this is what I'm going to promise you in return. And so they very much are alive in the sense that they inform us and they seem to kind of transcend this idea that somebody's in control. How many of you like conspiracy theories? I love them. I love conspiracy theories. If it's alien-related, I'm in. If it's Sasquatch, I'm in. If it's Sasquatch and aliens together, (laughs) guess y'all didn't even know about that, did you? He is a uh, trans-dimensional creature. That's why he's so hard to find. Um, But a lot of times, one of the reasons we love conspiracies is we love to peg the problems on, like, these five people, right? Like, so the Illuminati... There's this group of people, Hillary Clinton, obviously one of them, that are in control of everything. And if we could just pinpoint like those people, like there's always like an evil guy with a mustache doing this with his hands behind the veil. And behind that guy with a mustache, there's just another guy with a mustache. And it's just guys with mustaches all the way back. And that's how conspiracies work. And we love to be able to pinpoint on, it's obviously somebody is pulling the strings and deceiving us. But I think what's far more nefarious about this idea of gods or hyper-beings is that none of us really agreed to give our attention and to embody this idea and to allow it to control us and to reign over us. So with these big ideas, there's nobody really in charge. What you do find is a lot of these gods, they have priests, they have mediators, they have people who stand in the gap between the gods and us to to facilitate our worship, um, to demand that we make sacrifice, and then to dole out the promises. And we have these temples. One of the best examples that we may ever see in history is the internet. I think the internet very much operates like a god. Like, nobody's controlling the internet. It's just, it's, it's like all of our collective desires and wants and knowledge have just been cast out into this kind of digital universe, and it's taken on a life of its own. Like, nobody controls the internet. There's not a guy with a mustache, Mr. Internet, and he's, like, writing out all the code. It just kind of happens. But it demands our worship because the internet, in a very particular way, it's alive and it's moving and it's constantly shifting and growing and evolving and it continues to promise us certain things. Like if we give it this kind of attention, then it's going to give us what we need. And we have priests of the internet, right? 
We have mediators. We have people who have risen up into very prominent places in our society that are saying, yeah, absolutely, this is the hope for humanity. This is what's going to move us forward. Even I think a lot of the, the transhuman movement is, is all about us saying, like, if you give yourself over to this God entirely, it's going to fulfill all your promises. We have temples for the internet. You have one in your pocket right now or in your hand. This is a portable temple. So you don't have to wake up I mean, once every seven days and go to this very particular place to worship for an hour and a half and then you get to leave and that's you done with your worship of your God, you can just pull your temple out of your pocket. I mean, how many of you, like, that's what happens. As soon as there's like a lull, what do you do? We just sit here and we're just praising and worshiping, Right? because we believe it's gonna do something for us. And nobody told you that, you know what I mean? Like nobody sold you that line. There was no guy in a mustache that promised you all these things. It's like, it's something intuitive that happens to us. And I think the, the internet operates like one of these hyper beings. And so today we see alive and well, the God Ares, the myth of redemptive violence. We see Aphrodite, the goddess of erotic love this like toxic sexual positivity that we're seeing that's collapsing right now, that you should have all the sex that you can, everything that possible is on the table, no more kink shaming, all of these things, like break down all the barriers of, like, of monogamy and like, what's normal because that's the thing that's trapping you and keeping you from being happy. And a lot of people are feeling a lot of anxiety right now because there's absolutely no boundaries and I should be having as much sex as possible and I'm not because I'm just like a normal person you know? But what happens there? We also sacrifice people to the goddess Aphrodite. That's what they used to do in the ancient Greek era, that they would literally do sexual sacrifice in order to appease her. And we see that today, that through the objectification and dehumanization of other people through pornography at all, we're, we're turning those people into sacrifices. And we're saying, yeah, your worth is caught up in what you can offer to Aphrodite. And today we're going to be looking at this god Mammon, or the god of wealth. So the bishop, Robert Barron, who's a, a, a Catholic bishop in California, said that one of the ways of reading the Bible is it's understanding that it's Yahweh conquering all of these lesser gods. One of the illusions is that Israel was ever truly a monotheistic culture. In fact, at almost every point, they're kind of wrestling with this idea of like, yeah, it's Yahweh plus this half man, half fish, who's also going to give me what I need. You know, it's Yahweh plus it's also whatever um, an Asherah pole is. Like we're going to have that thing come in. So one of the ideas is like Asherah kind of evolves and becomes the goddess Aphrodite in Greco-Roman culture. So Israel was always wrestling with trying to stop being polytheistic to become monotheistic. And so Yahweh is conquering all of these lesser gods through, this, um, through the Old Testament. And when we come to the New Testament, we find Jesus using this term, you cannot serve both God and mammon. And mammon is not a word that we find anywhere else in Scripture. Um, it's, it, there's a pretty thin evidence for where it comes. It might come from kind of the Syriac gods. Um, but the Aramaic word mammona, it means wealth or profit, which is why a lot of times this verse is translated as, you cannot serve both God and money, or you cannot serve both God and wealth. But I think what it does is it robs us of recognizing the awesome power that wealth and profit have to actually become one of these hyper beings. Like it becomes more than just a tool. It becomes more than just an idea. It becomes this little God that demands something from us. And so the early church saw Mammon as a demon of greed, greed and wealth. That's what they saw Mammon is. And they began to tie the connections to this, this history of Israel where they continually turned uh, from Yahweh to lesser gods that promised them something in terms of wealth. So one of the best examples I've actually spoken of before uh, is the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. So if you know the story, Moses goes up onto the mountain to get the Ten Commandments from God. My favorite verse in the Old Testament, Exodus 20, 21. And the people stood afar off, and Moses entered into the thick darkness where God was. And while, they're up on, while he's up on the mountain conversing with God, the people come to Aaron. You kind of see him just kind of center right. 
And they say, give us a God. They say, give us an Elohim to worship. And so what does Aaron do? He gathers together all of their, like, their wealth, their valuables, their gold and everything, and they melt it down, and they create this golden calf, and they put it up on a pedestal, and everybody starts to worship or give attention to this golden calf. This, and he says, behold, this is your God. He says, behold, this is your Elohim. Now, some uh, interpreters say that, oh, maybe the, like this is a different God, like Aaron is offering them some other God. But one of the more devious in, uh, interpretations is actually that the calf represents Yahweh himself. But what Israel's saying is that God on top of the mountain in the thick darkness, that's a little bit too much for us. Like we don't know what to do with that God, a little bit overwhelming. So what we want Aaron to do is take the idea of God pull him off the mountain, literally mix him in with our stuff, with our valuables, make him more manageable, and stick him on a pedestal. Because this God we like. This God doesn't demand too much from us. This God is a little bit more containable. And I think that's the really devious thing about this story, is that they took the idea of God, but they mixed it in with their wealth. How many of you grew up with a prosperity gospel? Right? Like, if you love God enough, he'll make you, like, financially wealthy. That's the golden calf. That's mammon using the skin of Yahweh to kind of demand our worship. Now, we look at those stories and we say, ha, 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 look at those guys. They're so stupid with their giant golden calf on a pedestal that they're worshiping. We know better than that. And then we see this. Whoops. <laughs> Just, where's this? New York City on Wall Street, right? Now, what do we call a really good market? A bull market. And what do we call the market that we're just about to tip into? A disaster. A bear market, yeah. So literally, outside the stock exchange in the United States, there is a giant golden bull. Tell me that the old gods are not alive and well. And we say, oh, surely we've moved beyond all of that. Like, we are so much more rational now. Um, we don't sacrifice people to these gods. Since the pandemic began in May 2020, we have 573 new billionaires were minted during the pandemic. Their total net worth soared by $3.8 billion dollars. Did you know that barrels of gas right now actually cost uh, about $4 less than they did in 2007? So the reason that your gas prices are higher is not because there's a shortage of oil. It's because oil companies have decided that they want to make more of a profit off of you in times of trouble. That's what's actually happening. Meanwhile, it's projected that 263 million people are going to be pushed into extreme poverty because of COVID, because of the rising costs of housing and food and gas and all these things. So we have 573 new billionaires minted during the pandemic, and 263 million people are going to be pushed into extreme poverty because of what's happening in the world today. This is what mammon worship looks like. And we often explain away those things. We say, well, unemployment is lower than it's ever been, uh, which is true. Or one of my favorites is like, well, those people have worked really hard and they deserve it. Because Jeff Bezos obviously works 9 million times harder than you do. If you look at the ratio of what the average worker makes to the average CEO, it has skyrocketed in the past 40 years. But one of the tricks of Mammon is to tell us that to have, uh, to have wealth is a virtue. Wealth is a virtue. Like if you have money, it's because you're smart and you're talented and you have earned that. And then people who do not have wealth are stupid and ugly and just need to do harder. We've talked about it many times before, but this idea of like pulling yourself by your own bootstraps, that phrase was actually devised just over 100 years ago as a satirical notion. Like you cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But the corporatists in our society, the priests of Mammon, keep telling us, well, that's what poor people should do. They should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps because this is the land of opportunity. 
And so we have all these little phrases and ideas that are kind of so wrapped up that we can't see the forest for the trees. And so mammon worship in our culture is corporate, where we see things like this, where we worship what we call the almighty dollar, where we worship the numbers of the stock exchange. But mammon worship is also individual, that you and I, without realizing it, have fallen prey to the lies that Mammon speaks to us, and we continue to worship to that golden calf, hoping we're going to get what we're promised. So, it's very obvious that today, just as much as in any point in history, we need deliverance from these gods uh, who enslave us by their promises. So how does Jesus stand up against Mammon? If you can read the Bible as Yahweh conquering these other gods, how can we take that lens and begin to see the way that Jesus speaks about wealth, especially in this passage where he's saying, you cannot give, uh, you, you cannot you know, love both God and Mammon. But I think it's in generosity, because generous giving in the name of King Jesus is an act of defiance against Mammon worship. I know you were hoping for a far cooler way of killing gods, uh, but you're just going to have to wait for the next Thor movie to figure out how that works. Um, you can become a god killer. That's my Marvel tie-in for like the year, you know. I never got to be a youth pastor, so I have to make like cool movie references every once in a while. So what is the lie of Mammon? Mammon whispers in your ear and Mammon whispers through uh, your wallet to say, if you had just a little bit more in your bank account, then you'd be happy. Or for some of you, if you had just a little bit more, then you'd be safe. Or if you had a little bit more, then you could do that thing that you always wanted to do. And I think that's the primary lie of Mammon, is if you worship me, I'll give you what you need because where you're at right now in life is not enough. You need just a little bit more for happiness, for security, for power, whatever it might be. But the lie of mammon, and this is what we've deemed this consumerist mentality, to say at the core of who you are, your worth as a worshiper is that you are a consumer, which means you are inadequate the way that you are today. And the more that you consume, the more that you can find a sense of identity and the more that you can find the love that you so desperately desire. And what we find here, the power of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount is that he says, you already have everything you need, which we don't believe because we've been so conditioned by mammon worship to say, well, no, I just need a little bit more. If, I had a if there were more hours in the day, if there was more money in my bank account, if I could just work that or whatever, you know, all these little things, you realize like Americans take their vacation far fewer than any other society on planet Earth because we're so afraid. Because if you take what is literally owed to you by your employer, you're deemed lazy and you could lose your job. I was talking to somebody this week from our community who was saying that they were in danger of being fired for discussing um, salaries for, for a potential promotion they were taking, which is literally illegal. Did you know that it is illegal for you to be punished for talking about salaries? But we have this kind of corporate mentality that's built in, which keeps us in this cycle of fear so that we don't talk about such things. And so Jesus stands over against Mammon and says, you already have everything you need. Everything you need will be given to you. Consider the birds. Consider the lilies. <coughs> There's enough to go around. One of the radical claims of the biblical narrative is that God, a generous God created a generous world and that there's enough in this world for everybody. But we don't believe that because mammon has so infected our mentality that we believe there's only so much, there are only so many resources. And so we have to, like Jesus had really great ideas, but at the end of the day, we have to grind to get our piece of the pie. And money keeps us in this cycle of shame, which is why we don't talk about it. 
Now, sometimes in churches, absolutely it has, but we have been shamed into giving. That's a very real thing. But the answer to that does, is not we just stop talking about money entirely because that's when it still runs amok and controls us. So Mammon is a particularly powerful God because Mammon keeps us from talking about Mammon. And that cycle of shame ends up keeping us miserly. Do you know what the, the old word avarice, have you ever heard the word avarice? It's one of the seven deadly sins. Avarice is like hoarding. It's like, that, like greed is where you're just gobbling up a lot of stuff for people or whatever it is. Avarice is like you have something and you're just holding onto it so tightly because you're afraid of letting go. And Mammon keeps us in that greed cycle, but Mammon also keeps us in avarice or miserliness. And that's a human condition that affects both the rich and the poor. You see, a lot of times uh, in today's society, we tend to deem the oppressors are inherently demonic and the oppressed are inherently angelic, and they can do no wrong. But what Jesus is actually challenging us to, if you remember his first audience that he would have been speaking to were primarily poor people with something like a 95% tax rate based on what, they were, uh, what was being taken by the Judean uh, government but also what was being taken by the Roman government. And so he's the one telling them not to worry about their finances. Now, I think it's very much the problem of the rich uh, to get stuck in miserliness. As Jesus says later on in Scripture, um, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Um, but guess what? You're the rich. If you can hear my voice, you are the 1% globally. So, sorry. If you're ever going to try to exempt yourself from that one, be like, ha, 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 look at those stupid rich people. They're never getting into the kingdom of heaven. Um, if you're American, you are most certainly in that category. So miserliness is a human condition that affects both the rich and the poor. And I always love those counter-narratives that mess up our understanding of who's in and who's out and who's good and who's not good based on wealth. At my previous church, one of our spiritual mothers, Lydia, a fascinating lady, she lived in a very modest house by herself, never got married, had like two dogs and like three cats, and I think she had a budgie or something. And she inherited um, a manufacturing company from her father. Her and her brother in inherited this company kind of in the late 90s from their father. And they had military contracts, and they made all sorts of things for the military, all these different like attach attachments and accoutrements and things that blow up stuff and all this. And when Lydia took over the company, um, she felt a deep conviction from the Lord that she was creating, contributing to weapons of mass destruction. And so what she ended up doing was taking their company, and they downsized to only create this one thing, and it was like a thing that attaches things to other things. You know, like things that attach things to other things? And somebody has to create those things? She created that thing. And so she created things that attach things to other things. I think they were usually Hummers or something. I'm not sure. But she, and everybody said, this is stupid. Like, we create all this other stuff. Like, we have these military contracts. Like, we make um, a good amount of money. And then... Afghanistan happened, and then Iraq happened, and all of a sudden we were doling out uh, military contracts like they were candy. Some of you will remember that era and the, the you know, searching for weapons of mass destruction and so on and so forth. And Lydia's company exploded because all of a sudden the U.S. military needed things that attached things to other things, um, but not necessarily things that attached things to other things that were going to kill people, which is sometimes you just need things to be attached, Right? You've all been there, you know? And the company exploded, and no one saw it coming. It was just this, like, they, they started, and she you know, very quickly became a millionaire several times over, and she continued to live in this simple little house with her two dogs and her three cats and her budgie. And that woman gave away more money than I think I have ever witnessed anybody give ever. I mean, she, like, there were significant seasons in my church in Nashville where, like, a, it's a, a pretty large portion of our annual budget was based on what she was giving. Um, and there were several ministries in town that she was really investing in. She kept a lot of us going, you know, even kind of through the financial collapse in 2008. And she knew that God had blessed her in that specific season 
to, to practice radical generosity. You know, sometimes we talk about poverty as a spiritual gift or like a vocation. I think that's true, and it has absolutely nothing to do with what you have or what you don't have. It has everything to do with the mentality that you have when you give it away. And I think that's how the kingdom works, whether it's talking about divine poverty, whether it's talking about radical generosity. It has almost nothing to do with what you have or what you don't have. It has everything to do with the heart by which you receive the gifts that God has given you and what you choose to do with those gifts in the precious time that you have. But what is so profound about this is that we cannot develop a a robust theology of generosity that is an act of defiance against mammon that sets us free. Like we can't get it all of our kind of theological furniture arranged before we start doing it. Like generosity, it's only a thing that you can learn by doing it. You have to make the road by walking it. But God invites us on this journey of generosity to make us more like Jesus. And it's not an idea. Generosity is not a really great idea. It's not really great theology. There's, you, you, know, you don't read enough books about it or listen to enough podcasts about it, and then you've got it. You learn it by doing it because it strikes at some of the deepest questions in the human heart. Am I okay? Will I have enough? Where does my value really come from? I think especially in this era of like spiritual but not religious, a lot of times it's that spiritual but not religious means a, a religion of me. It's a religion of narcissism. And it's this, this result of kind of post-enlightenment romanticism turning into emotivism where whatever I feel is the truest thing about me. So I share my truth and you share your truth and those two truths have nothing in common because everybody are their own little emotivist islands. Um, And that keeps us in this trap of narcissism, that a lot of our approach to religion, because everybody is religious, we all worship gods, most of us just don't even realize that we're worshiping these gods. Those gods love to keep us trapped in narcissism. They love us to tell ourselves the lie that we're in control. We don't actually worship the internet. We don't actually worship mammon. Like, we're just doing what we need to do. Like, we're getting what we deserve, And so I think following God on his journey of generosity, learning how to make us less narcissistic and more like Jesus, is really fulfilling this idea that we become like who we worship. And we see it in very strong language several times in the Old Testament where God says, I am so flippin' sick of you singing songs to me. Like, I hate it. I hate, it's gross to me. Like the way that you come into this place and you sing songs to me and you don't take care of the poor or the widows or the orphans or the foreigners, like just stop. You could sing of my love forever as if, you know? And we see this like emotional response from God. He's like, you worship me with your mouths, but you're so miserly. You're so stingy. And if if we're really worshiping God, we're being transformed to look more and more like Jesus day by day. I want to kind of go back around to a couple of those verses in Matthew 6, verses 22 and 23. This is in the NIV. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And the Greek word there that's translated here as healthy, um, it really means stingy. And the word for unhealthy, or the word for healthy means generous, and the word for unhealthy means stingy. So it should really be, if your eyes are generous, your whole body will be full of light. Like if you see the generosity of God, moving through you into the world, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are stingy, if you're looking miserly and going, well, there's only so much going around and I've got to get my piece of the pie and maybe if I get enough in my bank account, then eventually I can practice generosity. Then eventually I can do good things for the world around me with my finances. Like you're going to be trapped in that. If your eyes are stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great 
is that darkness. And so what is God's model for standing up against the worship of mammon, of learning the characteristics of generosity and delivering us from our narcissism. I do not think that God is prescriptive in the way uh, that God teaches us how to do this, but I think there is a model, and I would really challenge you to think through this. Number one, we see throughout Scripture uh, the theology of tithe. Tithe means your first fruits, the first 10%. Now, a lot of times we think, if I have anything over, if I have 10% left at the end of the month, then I'll give that to God. Um, but they call it first fruits for a reason. I think what God is teaching us is to give the first 10%. We think about like even with like Cain and Abel, giving grain or giving animal sacrifice. We see this throughout the scriptures. To give the first piece reshapes the way that we see the remaining 90%. That's why it's the first fruits. And it's, it's a non-negotiable that we give to God. And I can stand up here and say, oh, we got to keep the lights on. We've got to pay salaries and all that. And that's a whole different conversation that's valuable. We give because we worship. Like, that's what God's trying to teach us through the tithe. It's like, give 10%, so you realize that I've, I'm giving 100% at all times. And it begins to reshape us, and we recognize, wow, everything that I have is a gift from God. And I can allow that to flow through me and to advance the kingdom. And then I think on top of our tithe, we're called to a consistent generosity. Think about a couple weeks ago when I asked you, what are those two or three causes that are the thing that you feel resonates with you the most. That you're like, yeah, this is it. The, the, this is where my heart breaks. These are, the, these are the kinds of causes that make me come alive. The least sexy and most effective way that you can support those causes is by giving consistently to the people that are on the front lines who know more than you and are doing a better job than you ever could. And that's good news. But you've got finances that could be able to be used for that. Um, so, you know, I grew up tithing. I tithe to our church. With the money I make in Airbnb, I tithe to the tribe. And consistent generosity. Um, I've begun supporting the Polis Institute uh, that do amazing work, uh, very data-driven work uh, in specific neighborhoods in our city and helping them rise up, uh, give to charity water, where 100% of everything you give goes to building wells in the third world and helping um, people find clean water. Um, there's up also a couple like artists that I support through Patreon. Those would be consistent generosity. And we're in the era of automation, so you can just kind of make that like consistently happen. And the third category that God calls us to is spontaneous needs that we're prepared to invest when surprises pop up. Like we have enough on deck that it's not like we're holding it loosely enough that when that moment comes and somebody asks for a need, you're like, yeah, okay, I got you. I can do this. It's like with our, with our church community as we've you know, committed to setting aside 10% uh, for our benevolence fund. And then with the war in Ukraine, we were able to send $6,500 uh, to a Ukraine relief fund. Like we didn't plan on that. That wasn't part of our budget. But because we're all generous together, we were able to do something amazing when crisis arises. So I want to tell you a story. It's very uncomfortable for me because I'm going to re reveal racist biases that are within myself. And I'm supposed to tell you that I've already like overcome racism in me or whatever. Um, but I was, a few weeks ago, I was driving back from my parents. You know, they live in Athens, Georgia. Uh, and I have to come down to 75. I thought I'd come through Atlanta. I didn't. Came down all the way to Macon. So it's like country roads, way out in the middle of wherever. Anybody from Georgia? No? Bless you. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's deep. It's deep south. So I'm running out of gas, and I can't find the gas station. I'm, I'm really starting to panic. I'm watching like the counter get down, and I'm like, basically running on fumes, and I find, okay, there's a gas station, it's this many miles, I'm like, kind of at 60, just kind of like cruising, like trying to like get myself there, and it was like, this was the first gas station uh, that I was going to come to, and it was on, you know, on my Google Maps, or whatever, I'm like, okay, great, and I pull up, and there's no gas station, like it never existed, have you ever found one of those on Google, and you're like, no, Google, you caught me again, and I remember there's one on the other side of the highway, like half a mile back, I'm like, okay, so U-turn, go back up the road, back into the countryside, pull over at this very like, odd-looking gas station, 
pumping my gas, standing there. Um, this like SUV thing pulls up and this guy gets out and he starts approaching me and he's already pulling up his shirt. Now I'm thinking, oh God, what's about to happen? And he starts to tell me this story about he and his buddy from Atlanta, they're driving through Macon. They have a tire that's just about to pop. They need to get it fixed. It's $125. The guy will only accept cash. Can I help him out? And he was pulling up his shirt because he wanted to show me he didn't have any weapons on him. This is a black man. He's covered in tattoos. He has dreads, you know, whatever. Like a lot of us, we have this bias, right? Like as soon as a black, like a, a young black man approaches you at a gas station, you're like, nope, okay, what's about to happen? And I felt like horrible, <laughs> you know, because we do that. Like that's, you know, being aware of those little triggers that we have. So the guy showed me the tire and everything, and we had a little conversation. I was like, okay, like I'll help you out. So we went inside, uh, went to the ATM, got him money, gave him a, you know, a pretty significant amount of money to pay for this tire that I don't know if he's going to use it or not. And again, what's our internal biases? We say, oh, people are lying. They're looking to take advantage of us. If I give money to this person, they're just going to go spend it on drugs. Okay? Again, Mammon, alive and well, convincing us of these things so we can retain miserly. So as I'm driving away, I'm just kind of thinking about this. And as soon as I like drive past where the first gas station was supposed to be, I hit Macon where there's like 25 gas stations. And I'm like, man, I could have just kept driving and I would have found like, you know, not as shady gas station like that one. Then I realized like, oh, okay, yeah. If I hadn't turned around and gone backwards to the gas station that I had already passed, I would have never encountered that guy and I would have never been able to like provide for him to get the tire that he needs to get back to, okay, so, okay, okay. Like, so sometimes we have these, these moments in our lives, like when we worship Mammon, we're so closed off to it because we think everybody wants what we've got and we're holding onto it miserly and we'll miss the moments that God gives us for spontaneous generosity. But if we're open enough to it, if we're worshiping Jesus, if we're practicing generosity where we've shaped the 90% through our 10%, where we're, we're devotedly giving consistently to causes we care about, then we recognize that whatever we have left, we hold loosely for these moments when God might bring us into the path of somebody who really needs help. And in doing so, we become less racist. And in doing so, we become less, uh, you know, critical of people who are poor or in need. And we begin to take on those eyes of God, those healthy, generous ways that we see the world and the opportunities to give uh, that may just save us as much as it does anybody else. So that's my challenge to you this week, is to sit down and consider what, what is the attitude by which you hold your finances? And are you stuck in mammon worship without realizing it? And what might be that journey of generosity that God is calling you to? So I want to invite you to stand. We're going to pray, and then we're going to give. And I love converting um, Scripture into prayer. I think that's what Scripture is there to do, is to teach us how to pray. So we read it but then we pray it. So it's going to be call and response, and there's going to be a couple moments where I'm going to leave space for you um, just to pray uh, in your own heart uh, before the Lord and to really work through some of this with you. And after um, we close out in prayer, I'm going to invite some of the elders and our leaders to go to either side, and they're here to pray for you. Um, whatever, whatever might be, whatever's on your heart, if you need a prayer of confession, if you need, just need a word of blessing, they're going to be there for you in that. And so let's pray this prayer of generosity. So I'll begin, and then you guys are going to respond. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. So just take a moment and offer God gratitude for all that you have been given because gratitude becomes that platform that delivers us from shame so that we can recognize the blessing of God in our lives.
next. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So just take a moment to confess to God times that you have been fearful or miserly or overcome with avarice. Next, together we say this. We will not worry about our life, what we will eat or drink, or what we will wear. We will consider the sparrows and the lilies. We are more valuable than both. We will seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things will be added unto us. So just take a moment to commit to God for this journey of generosity. Almighty God, whose loving hand has given us all that we possess, grant grace that we honor you with our substance and remembering the account which we must one day give. May be faithful stewards of your bounty through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we all say together, amen. So I'm going to invite the leaders and the elders to come down and stand side by side on either side here. Um, we're going to enter into a time of giving. Here's some of the instructions on how to give. You can go to citybeautiful.ch give. You can text to give. Those are some of the, the easiest ways. There's also a box out there if you uh, still have cash. Um, but I want you to just to take this time in worship to see what is God stirring up in you, whether it's gratitude, whether it's confession or commitment. Like what's that next step for you to take on that journey of radical generosity. So let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.